Well, we are this morning continuing a sermon series uh, that we launched last week. So you're, if you're new with us, you're jumping right in at the beginning. And we're looking at the story of Ruth, the Old Testament story of Ruth. And we're looking at it from a particular angle, uh, which I think is the leading theme in the book of Ruth, which is the mercy of God. That Ruth is the story of God's mercy through his people for a group of women who are caught in a desperate need. We saw last week Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi and her sister-in-law Orpah, who have been left as widows, all three of them, stuck in the midst of a famine uh, in a foreign land, left utterly destitute. And so the question that we're going to be asking over and over again in this series as we look at the story of Ruth is how can we show God's mercy to our neighbors? How can we be vessels of God's mercy to our friends, to our neighbors? And so with that in mind, we come to our scripture reading today. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, there's a tradition uh, in the rabbinic uh, early Jewish studies of the Torah, of the, the first five books of the Bible. There's a tradition that develops that holds that God, when he created the world in the first chapters of Genesis, actually sang the world into being. That just as singing is a creative act, right? It's not just expression like speech. It's creative expression. It's giving expression to your voice in a creative way that in the same way God sings creation into being. C.S. Lewis grabbed on that in the Chronicles of Narnia series. There's this wonderful story of Aslan singing the world into being. This vision of God singing over creation is backed up when you actually look at at Genesis 1, 
that there in Genesis 1, the creation story takes this incredible uh, poetic form, almost a lyrical form, where every time that God creates, it, it has this formula, right? God says, let there be light, oceans, land, animals, the whole scope of creation. God says, let there be, and then he, and then he sees it, and it says what? It says that, uh, that God looked, there was evening and there was morning, the first day, second day, third day. And God looked at what he was made, and behold, it was good. And so it goes on that way. For the five days of creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then when God makes humanity, when he makes Adam and Eve there in the garden, he breaks the formula, the chorus of the song breaks just a little bit. And it takes on this new, this new word. It says God looked and he saw that it was very good. God saw that it was very good. Imagine that. When God looks on humanity... When God looks on us, he sings over us that we are, in all of our createdness, good. And not just good, very good. Now, to be sure, in Genesis 3, the song takes on a minor key, right? Sin enters into the world. Humanity is broken. But yet God continues to bless and to rejoice and to delight in the men and women uh, that he created. Christian theologians from the very beginning have always insisted that though the world, though humanity is utterly broken in sin, that that brokenness does not ruin our original goodness. That that brokenness uh, does not so mar the image of God in us that we can say that we are no good, that we can say that we're worthless. But that in sin, we are both good and broken. We're both incredibly beautiful, with capacity for kindness and love and goodness, and broken and in need of healing but we're both. I bring all this up uh, because it's my concern, and I think it's a concern that that this chapter of Ruth gets right at, that we have become uh, almost incapable sometimes of seeing our neighbor's goodness. That many times as Christians, we become so good at seeing our neighbor's sin, so good at seeing what's broken in the world, so good at seeing what's flawed, that it can become very difficult for us to join with God in delighting over what's good in our neighbors. You know, I think that uh, by and large, this maybe is the fracture that happens uh, in American culture at large, right? You know, we can look out and see that we've never been more divided, right? Red states and blue states, rich and poor, white and black. We have all these ways of dividing ourselves, demonizing the other, looking down on the other. And I think that Christians have just, I mean, we're, we're responsible for originating plenty of it. But then when you bring this into the church, we can start feeling as though we have more, uh, that we're more at odds with our neighbors. They're, they're primarily sinful, not primarily good. And it become very difficult for us to see what's worthy in them, to see what's good, to see what's right, to see what's beautiful, and to celebrate it and to accentuate it. You know, that's what we see here in this early chapter of, Naomi, of, uh, of Ruth. We see Naomi, a Hebrew woman, a member of God's covenant family, engaging with two women in Ruth and in Orpah who are outsiders. These are Moabite women, women who are a part of a people that were very, very strange to Israel, a group of people that worshiped another God, a group of people that left to themselves, most Israelites would not have been looking to the Moabites for anything good. For any, they, weren't, they weren't looking there expecting any good to come back their way. And yet, in Naomi's relationship, particularly with Ruth, 
we see her both giving good to Ruth, looking out for Ruth's good, looking out for what's right for her, and receiving good back from Ruth. We see them in this interchange of goodness, of grace. We see in the midst of this darkness, remember we've said that, that this story starts at an incredibly dark time in the life of Israel. The judges were ruling over the land. The, the, the refrain of judges is that in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it was a period of, of moral bankruptcy in Israel, a time of great darkness, a time of poverty in Israel when there was famine. They didn't have enough to eat. They were going hungry, which is what led them to leave, to go to Moab. And so in the midst of this darkness, we see a glimmer of goodness in the exchange between these women. And what we're going to see today is that mercy, the life of mercy, while it does involve seeing what's lacking in our neighbors, right? We looked at that last week, entering into our neighbor's poverty, seeing what's broken, seeing what's lacking. It also involves seeing what's there, right? Seeing what's not lacking, seeing them in their gifts and their abilities and their talents and their graces. And so we're going to look at this story and see uh, how Naomi both seeks the good of Ruth and then uh, receives good from Ruth. First, uh, how she seeks the good of Ruth and uh, of Orpah. Look at what she says in verse 9. She goes to, to them in the, in the midst of their widowhood, starting in verse 8. She says, Go, return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So here's Naomi reduced to a place of utter vulnerability, lacking what she needs to eat, lacking a husband to provide both social connection and protection as well as heirs, as well as a life, and lacking any hope of further heirs because her daughter-in-laws are now both also orphans, or both, both also widows. And so Naomi finds herself cut off, cut off from what she needs to survive. And yet in the midst of that vulnerability, Naomi cuts herself off or shows herself willing to cut herself off even further, sending the only two people that she had left in this world, her daughters-in-law, away from her and back to Moab, back to the houses of their mothers to seek new husbands. Right? This is an incredible act of generosity and sacrifice. Her saying, look, I don't care about primarily what I need, about my connections, about my relationships with you. I'm willing to hold those things loosely to send you back so that you might flourish, so that you might find good, so that you could find what she calls here rest in the house of your husbands. Right? What she's saying is go back to Moab, go back to your mother's houses and find new husbands, find Moabite husbands who will come and, and cast their sheltering arm around you Remember we said last week that to be married in the ancient world for a woman gave you access to stability, to prosperity, to a livelihood in a way that a single woman or a widow would have been cut off from. And so she says, go and find rest. You've had a hard life with me. Go and find rest in another house, in another family. And then when they refuse... I love this little monologue in, in verses 12 through 13. When, when they refuse to go, they say, no, we won't do it. She, Naomi says this. She says, no, no, turn back and return to your people. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? She says, look, here's the chain of miracles that it would take for you to have any hope with me. Right? Me, an old woman, would have to get married. And even if I got married tonight and got pregnant on my wedding night and had twins and those twins were sons, if all of that happened, you would still have to wait for 18 years in order to have husbands. So please go. There's no hope here. God cannot work that kind of miracle. God cannot work that kind of miracle out of my bitterness, out of my emptiness. Naomi shows herself to be utterly destitute without even the ability to imagine a world where God would care for her and for these two widows through either miraculous or ordinary means. Right There was a tradition in the ancient world codified in God's law that said that if a woman was left a widow, that, her, that the brothers of her deceased husband would marry her to ensure a legacy for, for their dead brother. And she's saying, look, even if, that, even if that were to happen, there's nothing for you here. There's no way. Move on and go. So Orpah, uh, one of them does leave. She shows uh, in leaving that she did still identify somewhat with her old country in Moab. And so in verse 15... Naomi, pleading with stubborn Ruth, who refuses to leave, says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now look, Naomi uh, makes, there's several places in this chapter where Naomi makes a couple of problematic theological statements. Right? She, she, and in this, in this place, she encourages Ruth not only to return to Moab, but to return to the Moabite gods. Right? The Moabite god was a guy named Chemosh, uh, who was a violent, nasty, pagan deity. Right? We, would not, we would not advise anyone to leave and to go after foreign gods, uh, to go after going back to idol worship. But what Naomi shows does reflect what the reality was in the ancient world, which was ap apart from Israel. Most people lived as though there was a connection that could not be broken between land, people, and the gods. Right, that to go back to your old land and to go back to your old people was necessarily to go back to your old gods. And so while we would say, right, we should never, we should never wish people to go after other gods, right? Look, if, if Christianity doesn't work, just go try whatever, right? We, we wouldn't say that to somebody. But there is something in Naomi's action towards Ruth that's worth us noticing, which is this, that Ruth was concerned not only or sorry, Naomi was concerned not only with Ruth's spiritual life, but also with her material concerns. Right, that she was concerned not only with her spiritual life. Now, faithful Israel, as well as the, the Christian church, would always say that when we look out at our neighbors, that our ultimate vision, our ultimate hope, our ultimate aspiration is that they would come to know Christ, that they would come to know his saving work, that they would come to join us in worshiping him, Right, that the, the ultimate goal when we look out to our neighbors is that they would come to know life and its fullness in Christ. But that there's also a place for the people of God to look out on those who don't share our same spiritual concerns, that don't share common life in Christ, and to look out after them and to desire other things that are good in their life. 
right? We can, be, we can become so caught up in our seeking of the ultimate, the ultimate goal, that we lose out on, on penultimate solutions or things that, things that are good but, but are short of that. Things like looking out to our neighbors to make sure that they have shelter, to make sure that they have enough food to eat, that they have clothes on their back, that they have a just and well-ordered uh, city and neighborhood that they can grow up in, that their children are kept safe and well-educated, right? That the church, like, like Naomi, should be able to look out at our neighbors and seek their welfare, Seek what's good for them, because as human beings made in God's image, we desire to see them do well. We desire to see them flourish. And so here's Naomi, even at, even at great cost to herself, even if it meant them wandering away from, from Yahweh, from the true God, said, no, no, go and, and find shelter, find rest for yourself. You know, this is uh, theologically the way that Christian theologians have talked about this idea, is, the idea, is under the label of common grace, right? Why do we seek the good of our neighbors, even if we disagree with them theologically? Well, it's because we look at a God who seeks the welfare of our neighbors, right? Common grace is that word that theologians use to describe all of God's grace short of saving grace, right? It's the acknowledgement that for, for every good thing that we enjoy in this life comes directly from the hand of God. Right, the way it's, it's stated at one place in the Old Testament is that God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Right, whether you are a, a God-fearing farmer or an idolatrous farmer, when rain comes and it waters your crops and your crops produce and you feed your family and you celebrate with them around your table and you hug your children, that that in and of itself is a participation in God's grace. That, that God is gracious and his mercy is over all that he's made. And so God, the, and, and beyond God, the risen Christ, who we believe sits at the right hand of God, distributes his gifts to all of our neighbors. He looks at our neighbors and wants their welfare, wants them to flourish, wants their children to grow strong. And so we too should look out on our neighbors with a predisposition to seek their good and to show grace. A couple of, of applications and examples on this. First, this is why you heard Betsy just a little while ago give an announcement about us serving at Pinedale Elementary School. This vision of wanting what's best for our neighbors is what animates those volunteers who go in and serve there. Right? We have, we have a great group of people, a team of people that go into Pinedale Elementary School and spend an hour or two hours tutoring students in reading or in other subjects. Why do we do that? Right? We're working with a public school, so we can't go in there and, and distribute tracts. Right? We can't say, well, we're here to work with you on your on reading, so open the Bible to John 3.16. Right? We, we, we have to be guarded in the ways that we hold our faith and talk about our faith in that space. But, and yes, we do, we do hope uh, that one day the ground that's being paved through those tutors will lead to some of those children and their families coming into our church and them hearing the gospel and them growing up as disciples of Jesus. Right? We do hope that. But we also believe that even in the interim, even, even as, we, as we look forward and pray for that, the children should learn to read. The children should know that there's adults who care about them and love them and are showing up at their school. That they should know that if they get behind and fall behind in their reading, that Christians will come and try to help them catch up. That's a good thing for them to know. 
It's also a good thing for the teachers and administrators of that school to know in the midst of their, of their very, very difficult work that they're not alone. That there's a church that wants to support them and help them, that we're praying for them, that we're even going to throw a teacher appreciation party and bring them food. That's a good thing. Even if it doesn't lead to the salvation of, of many of them, which, let's, we, Lord willing, it will. We, we hope to see spiritual fruit. But it's a good thing to seek uh, their material well-being as well. This vision of seeking the good of our neighbors also is what gives each of our work and vocations serious meaning, right? Most of you don't spend your working week preaching to people, right? I'm, I'm the preacher here, and I don't even spend the majority of my working week preaching, right? There, if the only good that can come from your work is that you build relationships so you can tell people about Jesus, right? You should try to do that at work. That's a wonderful thing. But if that's, your, if that's the only reason behind your job, so that you can make a little bit of money to feed your family and that you can witness to Jesus. That shows an impoverished view of the good and dignity of human work. That God has created human beings and created human society in this way that we're dependent on one another to seek one another's welfare, right? You should be able to look at your job, whether, whether you're very satisfied in it or not, whether the world would look at your job and say you have a great job or would look at it and say you have a, an entry-level position, right? You should be able to look at your work and say, I am pursuing the good of my neighbor through this work, right? Some way my work is contributing to, to a better world for my neighbors, a better community, whether it's, it's trying to make for a more just community and you serve in the law enforcement or, or in law whether it's to be a more beautiful community and you serve in either, in either cleaning and sanitation to make it beautiful or you serve in home building to make beautiful and safe homes, right? It, we, we do that not for our own good, not just to make a buck off of our neighbor, but to create a, more, a better world for our neighbors, to seek a world where they can have justice and beauty and health. Many of you serve in health or in, or in education so they can grow in wisdom, right? We should be able to look at our job and say in some way, whether big or small, my work has meaning and value because I'm contributing to the welfare of my neighbors. I'm seeking their good. And so Naomi seeks the good of Ruth. But not only that, she also receives incredible, incredible goodness from Ruth. Now this can be lost on us, uh, but the, the, the narrator, the, the author of, of Ruth, one thing that he, is go, he or she is going over and above to focus, to focus our attention on, is the fact that Ruth is from Moab, right? We hear that word and we go, oh, that's, you know, what, what does that even mean? But if you look at verse 22, so, Ruth, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem. And you want to go, all right, we get it. They're, they're from Moab, <laughs> right? But this is rhetorically what he's pointing out is that this is, this is an enemy, this woman of Moab is an enemy of God's people. This is a, a, a population that spent much of their early history at war with God's people. Israel would have thought their religious belief and their practices were strange, much in the way that Jesus, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, I've, I've preached on that before, and as I know, you remember all of my sermons, um, but one of the things that Jesus is doing in that story is he's twisting it so that the Israelite is having to receive mercy from the Samaritan. Right, having to receive mercy from the one that he would have hated, 
that he would have been prejudiced against. And in the same way, Ruth, in showing this, this story, is showing that Naomi is receiving goodness from a person that no one in Israel would have looked at expecting to find goodness, that no one in Israel would have expected much from. So you can put in Ruth's place whatever kind of person, if you're honest, makes you cringe. Whatever the kind of person is that you can't imagine being embraced by, whatever person it is that you can't imagine spending a, a night sharing a meal in their home, maybe it's somebody that you view as being your political other, your religious other, your racial other, your sexual other, whatever it is, the person that you look at and go, I cannot imagine receiving anything good from that person. That is precisely the person uh, that this story is telling you. That, that, that's who Ruth was to Naomi and to the original audience. And yet, uh, from this outsider, from this uh, woman who would have been despised by many, we find on her lips one of the most, most poetic and beautiful statements of love and faith anywhere in the scriptures. Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. This is an amazing statement of both love and loyalty to Naomi as well as faith in God, right? If you're, if you're wondering what faith is, this, you could do worse uh, than this statement from Ruth, that it's a binding yourself to God and to his people. It's to be willing to say that God's people are my people and he's my God, right? We see that her loyalty transcends just loyalty to Naomi because she says, even where you die, I will stay and I will follow in your absence, right? She's clinging to Yahweh, to Israel's God. She's clinging to Naomi in a way that it is, again, really hard for us culturally to understand just how radical this is, right? You can see it a little bit. Have you ever been to a wedding where this was the reading? Right, I, I have. I've heard this be a reading uh, that was done in weddings because it sums up, doesn't it, that kind of total mingling of lives and of souls and of welfare that happens in a wedding where you say, I'm leaving, no longer am I a part of this other people with their family, it's now one family. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and nothing but death will part us. And so we appropriate it to marriage. And yet, it's, this is not a marriage vow. Right? That was, would have been understandable in the ancient world. But actually, what Ruth is doing is at the cost of marrying, right? at the cost of going back to Moab to find a husband that would secure her life, she takes this level of covenantal vowing to another widow. These are two desperate women without recourse, without hope, and she's pledging this kind of total life loyalty to her. This would have been a love and a, and a loyalty and a commitment that would have made any reader go, well, that's foolish. That's absolutely foolish. Why would you tie yourself to a widow? Why would you tie yourself to somebody else who has no better hopes and prospects than you do? Why would you do this? Later in the book, a man named Boaz, we haven't met him yet, but he's going to be uh, one of the human heroes of this book. Boaz is an Israelite man, a wealthy man, 
And he is going to call what Ruth does to Naomi here, hesed, hesed. That's the Hebrew word that means covenant love, committed love, steadfast love. It's the love that God had for his people, the love by which God bound himself to his people. The kind of love that could only be expressed in that covenant relationship between God and his people and God's people's love for one another. And yet, Boaz, this leader in Israel, said that when this foreign, weirdly cultured, Moabite widow expressed loyalty to Naomi, that was hesed. That was God's love through an outsider, through the least expected ones, coming to provide for Naomi. It was God's hesed that came to her in this way. Naomi not only seeks the good of her neighbor, Ruth, but she also receives incredible good from her neighbor. God's people always do this, that, that even from the Old Testament, God's people are not so cut off from our neighbors, so, so divided into us versus them, that we don't live reciprocal lives with our neighbors, both giving and receiving good with them. Right? How, why do we do that? Because even God, even God both gives and receives good from humanity, right? He gives his blessing, he gives the rain, he gives life, and he receives back from humanity the sacrifices of praise and gratitude and prayer. All through the Old Testament, we have these stories of Israel, God's peculiar people, receiving good from outsiders, right? We have David, the great king of Israel, in his moment before he was king, when he was on the run from King Saul, finding shelter with the Philistines being brought into their house, being brought into their palace, even after he had killed the largest of them, Goliath, him still being sheltered by them. We see the queen of Sheba making a pilgrimage to see King Solomon in the temple and making offering there, right, giving him good. We see the vision of Isaiah who prophesied that in that day, one day when the kingdom comes, that all of the kingdoms of the earth will come and lay offerings in Jerusalem, Right, that the wealth of the nations, the wealth of people who don't know God will come and make offering to the true God. Right, we see it in the life of Jesus, who though he gave immensely, gave life, gave bread, gave healing, gave his own life, also his entire life was tied into these relationships where he was dependent on others to give to him. Right, he received a bed and a place to rest when he was homeless. He received meals from the, ho- from the hosts that would bring him in. He received a boat when he needed to make a journey across a lake, although he, we later learned he didn't even need a boat. Right? He received a donkey when he needed a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem. He received a rented room when he needed a place to have dinner with his friends. He received a borrowed grave when he needed a place for his body to lay in death that Jesus both gave and received from humanity. And so we too both seek the good of our neighbors, but also, also look to receive from them. I have a friend who pastors a church in uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, So as to distinguish it from the Brooklyn that we've named a few blocks of Riverside. Um, But he, he pastors a church in Brooklyn, New York. And he had a guy, young guy who had just graduated seminary who was coming to Brooklyn to be a pastoral intern with him there. And this guy uh, had to raise his own money to go to Brooklyn and had to raise a lot of it because it's New York. 
And he wrote uh, what many young, well-meaning evangelicals write, uh, the support letter, right? Many of you, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've gotten this letter before. It says, here's what I'm doing, here's where I'm going, here's why I need money in order to do it. Would you consider partnering with me? And this young man and all of his zeal and his need for raising money did what we do, which is he painted Brooklyn in the bleakest possible terms, right? This is slightly before Brooklyn became the booming haven of all things hipster. Um, but he wrote a letter that, that, that talked about just how destitute Brooklyn was, how spiritually bankrupt it was, how impoverished the people were, how, how low church attendance was in Brooklyn. Why? So that people would read it and go, man, I've got to send a missionary to Brooklyn. So he painted it in the bleakest light possible. And he sent uh, this letter to my friend. And my friend gave him in the best pastoral way, took him out behind the woodshed <laughs> and told him, you have not lived here. You do not know this place and you do not know what's here. You don't know the pastors that I serve with. You don't know the other faithful pastors, many of them of immigrant communities in Brooklyn that have been serving here for decades upon decades. You don't know the goodness and the creativity of what's produced here. You don't know the love and the tenderness that I've seen in its people. Do not slam your neighborhood in order to make it look like hell on earth so you can raise money from the South to come here. Learn the community. Learn what's good. Because the, the Christian mission is never just to enter into a neighborhood because of what's wrong with it, to think that we bring everything that's right. We enter into a community, yes, looking for what's wrong, right? We, we, we talked about that. We will continue to talk about that. That when we enter into a neighborhood, we enter into it with an eye for what's lacking, an eye for what we can bring, an eye for how we can contribute. But also we go expecting to find the grace of God. We go expecting to find things that are good and beautiful and rich. We go not only expecting to give, but also to receive. Let's have an honest conversation. The whole thing's been honest. I've not been lying to you. <laughs> I have a concern uh, for our church as we enter into a, to service in this neighborhood um, that falls along these lines. If you left and spent, let's say, five minutes in a car to get here today, you probably left a neighborhood that from the outside looking in has more to offer than Lackawanna has to offer. You might have left a neighborhood with homes uh, that are larger and better kept. You might have left a neighborhood that you look at as safer. You might have left a school district that you view as better, right? We, we do, many of us, come into this neighborhood and we're aware of a certain amount of lack that's here before us. And that's not bad, right? Running into a place uh, that has needs, that has real needs, is a good thing. It's an honorable thing. But if we come into this neighborhood solely with our eyes fixed on what we have and that our neighbors lack, we cannot help but do more damage than good in our community. We have to learn to adopt a posture that embraces a type of mutual need, mutual poverty, that says that we too are in need of the grace of God. And we actually need one another. We need one another. We need to come to find our lives together in such a way that we both give and receive for one another's good. That we come into this neighborhood increasingly looking to find its assets and its gifts and its blessings. Every bit as much as we look to find what's lacking and what we can contribute. 
as we, as we seek, which is our goal over the years ahead, to become a church that's woven into the fabric of this community, a church that's so ingrained in this community that, that we can't imagine our own lives apart from, from our neighbors and that our neighbors can't begin to imagine what life was like in Lackawanna before our church, where we come to, be, to live our lives wed together in some way, that that weaving happens through the mutual giving and receiving of grace, both giving and receiving what's good and what's life-giving. In the economy of God's grace, we are bound together. We can't take an us-them posture, whether politically or by neighborhood, because in so doing, we cut ourselves off from people that we need in order to learn God, to learn the gospel from them. Naomi needed Ruth, and she discovered that needing as she wed her life together uh, with Ruth's. You know, I had the, as an appeal to this, as we look forward, and I view a lot of this sermon series as, as trying to build our awareness and capacity for what we hope the journey ahead will look like as we get more and more involved in our neighborhood. As we look to what that future hope is, the best way that I can paint a picture of what we hope is to, point, is to talk about our past. Right, Many of us, when we came, when our church made the move uh, from the Wyndham Hotel to here to the, the City Rescue Mission, we could not imagine what God had for us here. Right, Just last week, I was at a presbytery meeting, which um, is about as much fun as it sounds. Uh, this is a, a regional meeting of Presbyterian ministers. Sounds like a wild time. Um, and we get together, and we tell our stories, and we do some church business, and we do light a little bit. And it was my job as a church planter uh, at this particular meeting to give an update, right? To give an update on what's happened and what is happening in our church as we journey from uh, church plant, baby church, uh, towards toddlerhood, adolescence, hopefully one day adulthood. And I, I was left to talk about what God has done in our lives. And it was very hard for me to even sum up in the five minutes of this excruciatingly long meeting that I had to tell all that God has done over two years to tell all that God has done in leading a group of people uh, from a comfortable, if somewhat drab, hotel uh, on the south bank of the river uh, into this community here at the City Rescue Mission. Right, there are book, there's, a, there's a large industry that's targeted at pastors writing books on how to grow your church, right, how to grow large and successful and financially independent churches. Right, you can, you can sell a book if you write it with, with that advice. And it usually involves finding a way to a suburb that's fast-growing, where people are moving in and money's pouring in, right? There, there's, not a, there's not a book on how to grow your church by moving to a rescue mission, to a recovery center, in the midst of a neighborhood with very real needs, and to trust God to grow it in the midst of that, to grow a community that's beautiful and rich and locked together in a web of given and received grace. And people would come up to me and say, man, Dave, it sounds like your ministry there is really hard. I can't imagine all that you see, all the, the life that you see there. And I, man, I, either I did a terrible job of telling the story uh, or you just weren't listening. Because yes, it's been hard. We have said goodbye to friends. Right? We've lost people to death. We've lost people to relapse. But I cannot in five minutes sum up the way that God has blessed our church. Uh, through the friendships, uh, through the grace given and received, through the, 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 uh, the family, the strange, paradoxical family that God has started to knit together here, that his goodness to us through our neighbors, through our friends, is far more than anything we would have imagined. 
And as we seek to become more and more entrenched and ingrained in this neighborhood, we do so knowing that as we meet our neighbors, God is only going to, even in the midst of heartache and difficulty, bless us in the midst of it as we see surprising and amazing grace. Let's pray.